All right, that's good. That's good. I'm glad the. Uh, sound like I'm getting a little feedback. There. All right. Hiding God's Word in our hearts. Isn't that great? I hope you keep encouraging these young children to do that, even if it's just a portion of a verse, right? Because the Word of God's alive and powerful, and we know that when they get to be teenagers, they get a little ashamed of wanting to quote scriptures, right? Unfortunately, and uh, we want to encourage that to move right through the teen years right into their 20s. Hiding God's Word in their heart. That's so important, especially in the day in which we live. Now, we're going to be looking at the prophecy of Micah in the will of the Lord. How many of you have heard messages from the prophecy of Micah, not including when we went through the minor prophets? Because we did, we did a brief session through it about six years ago now, right, brother? About six years ago, uh, we did the minor prophets. And that's part of the reason that I felt like there were a few of the minor prophets we looked at, like Zechariah, in greater detail and in prayer before the Lord I, I I'd been wanting to do a detailed study of Micah for a long time it, it's right in the center of the 12 the minor prophets and and to me I thought that I know we've got Micah 5 2 right that we remember Christmas time every year about the Bethlehem birth of our Lord but that's not all there is to Micah the, the importance of this book and the relevance that it has to our contemporary day, you will see, I trust, as we work through it. So let's begin our reading in chapter 1. We'll read the, uh, the first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord, by the way, right? So as we approach this session, we're studying the word of God. This is God's Word. It's alive and powerful. It speaks to our hearts. Let it do that. Open our hearts to it. The Word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now listen to this. This is a staggering message. It was when he gave it. I mean, it rattled the civilization of that day, and it still should today. Hear all you peoples. So this message isn't just to Samaria and Jerusalem. It's to all the peoples of the earth, to all nations. Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. 
I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten in pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Wow. This is, as one writer has labeled it, a punitive epiphany. And there are certain occasions in the history of humankind where God has intervened on this planet, which is His, by the way, right? The planet belongs to Him. Where He has intervened in a dramatic catastrophic, significant way, and, and it affected all the nations of the earth. And there's an event like that coming again still in the future, isn't there? Which this gives a somewhat dim picture of what's coming. There will be a huge shaking of the whole earth again when our Lord, just before His second advent, when our Lord comes back, but this particular event occurred around from 732 to 701 B.C. Most of you aren't familiar with those dates, probably. Most of us in the West aren't as aware of what happened in the Middle East in that particular 8th century B.C. The 8th century B.C. was monumental in its impact historically. And it's all documented not just in the Bible. It's documented in secular history as well because the event that Micah is referring to here is the great invasion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire that began roughly around 732 and continued all the way till 701 B.C. You say, well, the Assyrian Empire. I don't know any Assyrians today. And you don't. Because the Assyrians, a hundred years later, were crushed by the Babylonians and the great Babylonian invasion that followed the Assyrian one. But the Assyrian invasion preceded the Babylonian. It was first. After the, the first great world empire was Egypt, according to the Bible. And secular history, I think, would validate that. There were localized civilizations like the time of Nimrod, and probably in certain eras in the time of China's history, and maybe in India as well. But they weren't global in the, in the way that Egypt was. Egypt had its, its reaches out economically, socially, and politically through most of the habitable world of its day, in the, in the height of its great empire. But then after the Egyptians came this this particular nation the Lord planted in the land of Israel. See, the, the Egyptian empire ruled through those various dynasties that existed roughly 3,000 B.C. all the way down to the time of Moses, 1446 B.C. And then things changed. And God brought a people out of Egypt who were slaves in bondage. and brought them into the land of Canaan and established the United Kingdom 
And under David and Solomon, it was probably the greatest empire this world has ever seen as far as wealth, as far as prestige, and also as far as influence for God, the true God. But even that one crumbled, didn't it? It divided after Solomon in, his, in the days of Rehoboam. It became the northern and the southern kingdom. And gradually that division occurred in 931 B.C. And from 931 to roughly 731, 200 years, it began to continually fragment in its influence. And you know why? Well, the book of Micah is going to tell us. The book of Micah is going to expose. And so it's very valuable for our learning to see what happened. What happened was basically, in, in a small way of thinking about it, we'll expand on it as we move through the studies in Micah, that God's people became like the world. That's basically what they did. They basically looked at the world empires and the world methods and said, you know, we might be more successful doing their way instead of the way of the Word of God. And they gradually apostatized, departed, fell away from the Word of God. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in one generation. It, happened, it was multi-generational. But, beloved, that very thing is happening in our day. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. It is happening in our day. It began after World War II. It began before that. But I mean that significant departure from the Word of God began right after World War II in the 1950s and then with the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And I believe had the Holy Spirit not intervened, we would have never made it to the 70s. Because Satan's influence through hallucinogenic drugs. I don't know if you remember that. And the whole effect of the Vietnam War and what it had on the whole world, not just this country. And the impact of, of the social revolutions that were happening at that time. I mean, things were corrupting fast. My older brother and I pleaded with my parents to send us to private school because we had heard stories. This was in the late 60s. We had heard stories that in the public school that some of the people that were pushing drugs like cocaine and heroin were lacing the food in the lunch line to get the people addicted to it so they could sell it to them. We heard that from our friends. We didn't make that up. And so a great sacrifice, my parents sent us to private school. But you didn't escape it there. The drugs, they just did the more expensive drugs there. And one of my classmates, Lord knows where he is now. But back then, acid was a popular drug to do, thanks to Timothy Leary and his experiments with mind expanding. And, and one of my friends did acid, and they found him. He took all his clothes off and, and was up in a tree and thought he was a bird. I know it sounds funny, but it, he was, they had to bring the guys in white coats in to get him. The only reason I knew about it and the rest of us because they, they immediately called a convocation of the whole class, our, our class and the, and the class ahead of us because the, the, school, the administration was so rattled by this. He was sent to a mental institution and we never heard from him again. He was a nice young man. He was intelligent. I played with him on the football team. 
handsome, and look what he gave up, gave away everything for one quick high. Now, he got high all right in more ways than one. But it was a sad story. And, beloved, these things are happening. We're, we live a pretty sheltered existence, and, and, and I don't fault that. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful you parents are sheltering your kids to a certain extent, but, but a lot of us have no idea what's really happening out there and the degree to which things are decaying. Not by the decade now, by the year. It is accelerating that rapidly. And if we're not aware of it, we're going to get wrapped right up in it, and a lot of our young people are. A lot of our young people are. Young people that I know some that, that led the youth group when they were teenagers are all caught up in evil now. And we've asked, you know, so why did you, when you got baptized, what was that about? Well, I just did that to please my parents. Or I did that so I could get the car when I graduated from high school. For whatever reason. In other words, I just pretended. And there's a lot of that, especially in America. So the word of Micah here, and it's staggering. Now, Micah's name is a fascinating name, particularly to me, because... My middle name is Michael, Mikael, and, and Mikael, Micah is really probably the short and firm to Mikael, but Mikael means who is like. And then if you have the Yah suffix, that's Yahweh, that's the Lord, or the El suffix, it's Elohim, God. And, and he plays on his name in chapter 7 and verse 18. Who is like God? Who is like the Lord? In other words, there's nobody like him. He is incomparable. And Micah is going to look at his generation, at the rulers in his generation, at the prophets who should have been speaking the word of God in his generation, and he's going to tell the truth about them, what they really were, and contrast them with the great true Shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes out in full glory right in the middle of the book in chapter 5. And believe it or not, and, and I didn't take time to diagram it for you in a diagram, but the, the entire book is chiastic, but the middle section, chapters 4 and 5, is chiastic, and it moves about the center of that chiasm is right there in that section in 5, 2 to 5. The true shepherd, the coming of the one who will finally lead, nurture, keep, protect God's people forever, Jesus Christ. So Micah's prophecy has great value for us in many respects then, doesn't it? And as we think about it as the word of God, look what Micah says. Here in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. And immediately, as we study the word, we want to say, well, the word of God, every word is important, right? So when the place name, not always Isaiah, we don't know. Isaiah doesn't give the place where he lived, although Tradition tells us it was Jerusalem, and some believe he was of the royal family, of David's family, which is rather interesting. 
But certainly Isaiah's prophecy, who, he was contemporary with Micah. We have three prophets that were contemporary with each other in three different areas, and each one is strategic. In the north, it's Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, right? The prophet there that was contemporaneous with Micah and Isaiah was Hosea. And Hosea gives a staggering revelation of God's love for his people by using the picture Hosea himself marries a woman who is a prostitute who departs from him and has other lovers. And Hosea stays with her, buys her back. She finally ends up in slavery, buys her out of slavery and brings her back to the marriage and loves her. And, and God says, that's a picture, Israel, of my love for you. What a picture. And Hosea not only spoke it, he lived it. He lived it. He lived the kind of love that is God's kind of love, that is unconditional love. When God calls out His people, He stays with them. He'll bring them through. Like Steve said, sometimes through pathways that we don't choose. But He's going to bring us through. And one of the great teachings in Micah is the doctrine of the remnant. The remnant. And I trust we all know what that means. It's a very important biblical word. We were teaching in, in South Korea. That was back in 05, so six years ago. And they asked me to speak to a group of singles, college and career, college-age kids. And they wanted a Q&A. And so we're having a Q&A, and one of them asked me, what does the word remnant really mean? And trying to mask the surprise I had that they that young people growing up in an assembly wouldn't understand it's such an important word. You and I are part of the remnant in this generation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? In other words, the remnant is God's people in a given generation, in a given culture, the people that really are willing to be loyal and to live for Him no matter what because of our love for Him. And we don't worry about what the world says about us. And we don't worry about trying to please the world because we know the world is antagonistic to God. And God has called us out and privileged us to be in fellowship with Him totally by grace. We don't deserve it any more than the other people of the world. But having understood the grace of God, we want to live for Him. We want to represent Him. We want to honor Him with our lives and with our testimony. And the doctrine of the remnant stands out so strongly because despite all these judgments that Micah is going to reveal in this book, the protection of the remnant continues all the way through. He'll conclude it in chapter 7. Who is a pardoning God like thee? That great hymn based off of that verse, verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a pardoning God like you who forgives the iniquity of the remnant of His people? Do you have that kind of attitude about God? Do you know Him like that? As a child of God and knowing that you've been forgiven by a holy God when you didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve it, there's no way we could have purchased it, 
there's not enough time or money or strength in our bodies if we wanted to give thanks to Him for all eternity that we could thank Him for it. Amen? And yet, He has endowed us with that privilege to serve and represent Him, the holy, awesome God. And so that's a theme that works through Micah as well. So Hosea was, was primarily prophesying in Samaria to the north. Isaiah in Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And most of us are familiar with Hosea and Isaiah. They were contemporaries. They probably knew each other. And their prophecies, when you compare them, it's a rich study. But there's a third leg to this triangle, and that is the area where Micah prophesied. Down in the southwest of Jerusalem, in the center of that area was Lachish, or Lachish as some English people pronounce it, but it, it, Lachish is a better pronunciation of, of the city's name. And so we have Samaria, Jerusalem, Lachish. Now Samaria was at a strategic location in the north. That's why it was the capital city on the Trans-Samaria Expressway, which for those who have opportunity to go to Israel, we'll see that back in next March. We won't be able to go to Samaria more than likely, the city, but believe me, I have been there twice. And what Micah describes here, not one stone left upon another, is literally true still today. Jerusalem has been rebuilt some 19 times. Samaria was never rebuilt after the Assyrian invasion. And it still stands as a, as a monument to the true judgment of God. I mean, just as he describes it here, the idols falling down in the ground and the stones, and that's exactly like it looks. Now, it was a famous city. It was a wealthy city in its day. You could compare it to a Houston or a New York or a Chicago, and to see a city like that in just total ruins is an ongoing testament. But not only Samaria. You move down to the southwest, and you, you come to the city of Lachish. Now, we had to rearrange the schedule to get Lachish on the tour because they didn't include Lachish, but it's a very important place. To, the, the archaeology work that was done there was very important. And it's strategically located because at the southwest corner of the Holy Land, guess what it is the protection for? Any of the Egyptian armies that might come up from the southwest. They would come before they got to Jerusalem and Samaria. They had to come through Lachish. It was a walled city. It was in an area that the Bible calls the Shephelah, which is low rolling hills. It's a beautiful country. Jerusalem is in the hill country, the higher elevated kind of low mountains. But the Shephelah is right up next to it. It's the lower hills. And it was a, a wonderful area. And this is where Micah's hometown was. Moresheth. And these other cities that are listed later on in chapter 1 that we'll look at tonight. But notice what he does say in verse 13 of chapter 1 about Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. And that's, this thing was, this was so revealing to me when I saw it because I wonder why if you had Isaiah in Jerusalem. We have 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Why did we need the book of Micah? Why did God, the Spirit, 
choose to preserve it. Because every book that's been preserved by the Holy Spirit is important to God. And needs to be important to us too, right? And so we want to understand, why did he preserve it? And we begin to find out Lachish. Lachish was known for its military hardware. And he'll talk about that in this book. In other words, they learned to rely on their chariots and horses and weapons of war instead of upon God. Now the Old Covenant, they were forbidden to have chariots and horses because God wanted them to trust in Him to protect them. But think about that in terms of our day. Think about the great pride that Americans take in the military hardware of this country. And maybe you and I wouldn't sleep as peacefully at night if we didn't know that we had the cutting edge technology in terms of our military hardware. We do. But we don't know that's going to last. And if you're trusting in the military instead of the Lord to protect you, you're leaning on a weak foundation. If anyone's going to protect us, it's got to be the Lord. Unless the Lord build the house, the laborers labor in vain. You see, it's got to be Him. And so you see then that there'll be a huge wake-up call here. Micah does tell us not only where he prophesied in verse 1, but the time frame, the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, roughly 740 to 686 B.C., so roughly the 8th century B.C., contemporaneous, as we said, with Isaiah and Hosea. And he begins in verse 2. I, I see in verses 2 through 7 four sections to this oracle. This is the first oracle he records. May not have been the first one he gave, but it is a clearly, it's an oracle, a judgment oracle, an oracle of doom. But notice it's not just for Judah and Samaria, is it? Here, all you people. So the call in verse 2 is to everybody, all the nations. And you say, this is interesting. There's a principle here. Peter says that judgment has to begin where? The household of God. Judgment, when the Lord begins to do a work of judgment, you know, a lot of people in our world say, well, you know, God must be checked out because we don't see His activity anywhere. He's either on vacation or He's asleep or there is no God. God is dead. The God is dead movement, which goes back to the 1960s as well. Oh, no, God's, God's very much awake. And a lot more of the rumblings we see happening internationally, I think, are under the hand of God than most people want to admit. But God's principle is that He will, if He's going to bring judgment to this world in a sort of disciplinary way, He will start with His own people first. Why? Because He doesn't love us? No. Because He does love us. Right? Like my parents, when I'd bring some of my friends over to the house... 
And we'd be carrying on and something needed to happen disciplinary-wise because we got out of hand. Who did my mom and dad start with? My friends? There may have been one of my friends that was more severe than I was in the evil. Oh, started with me. And then it went sometimes to them too. My mother particularly was a bold person, so she wasn't afraid of anybody. But some people, you know, are a little more diplomatic or politically correct or whatever word you want to use. Mom was fearless in standing up for God and for good. And so the Lord began with Judah and Jerusalem and Samaria in the northern kingdom. But when the Assyrian army came in from the north, they didn't just annihilate Samaria and Judah. They, they went in all directions. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Neo-Assyrian. It's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire because there was an earlier empire in around the 1800s B.C., but in the 700s was what's referred to as a rebirth of the Assyrian Empire, the Neo, the new Assyrian Empire under Shalmaneser V and Sennacherib and these other Sargon II, these great known kings. And you say, well, how do we know about them? Because in the British Museum, there's, an, there's a huge section of the British Museum dedicated to wall reliefs bigger than that curtain wall release because the Assyrians were known for decorating their palaces, especially the palace in Nineveh, the capital city, with big reliefs of how they conquered their people. And so for a historian, it's a tremendous resource. They, they diagrammed how they, had, they had di diagrammed the invasion of Samaria and Lachish and diagrammed what they did to the people. And the Assyrians were known as the most ferocious and brutal and atrocious of the empires of the ancient world, worse than the Babylonians. And so when the Assyrians moved into your land in war, you didn't want them, and you didn't want to stay back and defend your little house. You got out. And I only pray that we never see rulers in this world again like the Assyrian kings. We might, though. Based on what we see in Bible prophecy, this may come back again in its ferocity. But the things they did to people, and I'm not going to even describe them to you. I want you to get a good night of sleep tonight. Because, well, I was in Fort Worth back in the 90s in the British Museum exhibit was on exhibit. It was in the museum in Fort Worth at the time, a portion of it. It was traveling around the country in the Fort Worth Museum. And uh, have you seen it, Steve? Yeah. So, and actually, it happened to be in Israel at the Israel Museum a few years later, and I happened to be there to see it. And, and it's mind-boggling. What they did to people just to humiliate them and cause unnecessary pain before they kill them. It's just, it's unimaginable. And, and that's why I'm not going to describe them to you. I don't want to put those ideas in your mind because once they get in there, they don't come out. But it was terrible what they did.
And, and people trembled in that day. And, and the king of Assyria thought he was God, you see. And he boasts about trapping Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. And he does encircle Jerusalem. He does destroy every city, every major city in the southern kingdom in Judah, except Jerusalem, doesn't he? Comes like the Bible says, they came right up, the waters came right up to the neck. And God delivered them with that miraculous deliverance of the 185,000 killed in one night. A picture of what's coming in the battle of Armageddon. Very similar picture. And so Micah, if, if there's anybody, you know, Micah, you know, prophesy somebody else. Prophesy maybe the Hittites are going to come in from modern day Turkey. Or prophesy the Medes are going to come in. Don't prophesy the Assyrians. Those are a terrible people. Don't let and But they did come. And Nineveh was their capital city. Just north of Babylon. Nineveh was built on the Tigris River. Babylon on the Euphrates River. Most of us have seen pictures of that in the last 10 years, I think, with the wars and so forth over there. And one man built both those cities. You know who that is? Nimrod. Nimrod. And, and Micah quotes him in chapter 6. He say, why did mention Nimrod? You know, Nimrod goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. He was the great civilization builder, empire builder after the flood. The first great empire builder after the flood, Nimrod. And he and his wife, and I agree with Henry Morris, who believes that the cult of the mother and the child that is popular in Christendom, you know, the Madonna holding the baby, goes all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis, his wife, Tammuz, her son, who supposedly went through a resurrection and ruled after his father's death and all of these kinds of things. All of those mystery Babylonian mystery cults go back there's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says, isn't it? So we think, oh, we find out about these things today. Or there's something new. It's nothing new. It hasn't changed. And I agree with Henry Morris that the evolutionary idea, the evolutionary hypothesis, you know where it goes back to? It doesn't just go to Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin got the idea from Charles Lyell anyway, the geologist, right? Charles Darwin, was he had gone to seminary. He was going to go into the ministry. No, he wasn't a scientist. He had no training in science. But he was used by the scientists of his day to write that origin of species. But it goes way back before 1859. goes all the way back to Nimrod, the Tower of Babel. You've heard of that story in Genesis 11? Well, guess who built Babel? Babel. Nimrod. And we're told in Genesis 10. You know, there is so little that we're told in the early chapters of Genesis about the ancient civilization. Isn't that true? I mean, if you're a historian buff like I am, uh, there's so much more information you know, you, you'd want to know about this. But, beloved, don't worry about what the Bible doesn't tell us. Be more concerned about what it does tell us. That's what Mark Twain said. So I'm not so concerned about what the Bible hasn't told me. I'm, I'm concerned about what it does tell me. And that scares me enough. To the fear of the Lord 
to recognizing the God, the creator of this universe, and acknowledging him, which the evolutionary hypothesis has been trying to put him out of his creation from the start. It had to do that. That's why it's such a huge deception. And think of the intelligency of people in our world. People I went to school with, people I was taught by in university. And they believe that untrustworthy, unscientific. It is not science because it can't be proven. Their hypotheses are only guesses. They're not proven in a laboratory. That's what science is. Science is something you can document, you can prove in an experiment. You do this to this and it does this and you can document it experimentally. That's science. But just saying that, well, carbon dating, you know, that carbon and atoms have emitted from molecules at the same rate throughout all the history of civilization and creation. That is a guess. Nobody recorded the carbon emission back in 2000 B.C. or 3000 B.C. They don't know. And that's where their, their whole foundation, the doctrine of uniformitarianism, that, it, that everything, all the processes in nature continue now at the same rate as they always, right from the beginning. And Peter said in Second Peter 3 that scoffers would do that in the last days. So we're not surprised. We've been informed. See how our Lord protects us by telling us ahead of time what's coming? So Micah prophesies of this invasion. Now, the language he uses at the coming in verses 2 and 3. So we have the, the, uh, the call, hear all you peoples in verse 2. Listen, O earth, all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. And that word temple could be translated palace. That Hebrew word. It's not always the word that's translated temple. So it's the Lord from his holy palace. His residence as king. The kings reside in palaces, right? And it's a holy place. And he's shaking the whole earth. He's announcing through this prophet that he is about to do something that would make their ears tingle to hear it. And so what is it? For behold, verse 3 and 4, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Now this is metaphoric language. This is pictorial language because God doesn't have a body. God the Father, God is spirit, right? Holy, the, the, the Lord Jesus took on a body, but God the Father is spirit. The Lord tells us that in John 4, right? And they who worship Him, worship in spirit and in truth. So he, he doesn't walk on the mountains with physical feet. This is metaphoric language to tell us that he, it's a way of His descending in judgment upon the earth. And when He does, it's going to be those mountains, when He touches them, are going to melt like wax in the fire. Now, sometimes the Bible uses that pictorial language to describe earthquakes and volcanic activity, which it pretty accurately describes, doesn't it? And sometimes it's used to describe an invasion of a human army because the invasion of the Assyrians is going to be on that level of basis of what they do. They annihilated everything. They went into a village. They took all your food. If the people stayed back, they killed them all. 
women, children. They took all the food and then they burned the place down so there was nothing left. It was just a charred ruin and off they'd go to the next village. And that's how they supported themselves in their marching. They had Someone had to pay for this massive machinery and these were all mercenaries. They were hired soldiers like Qaddafi's using over in Libya today. He doesn't have any loyal people to Libyans very many anymore. They're mercenaries. They're professional soldiers. They'll fight for anybody who pays them. And they used those in that day. These were men that just liked to go around killing people. And they got paid to do it as soldiers, you see. It was the way they made their living. The Babylonians used them. The Greeks used them. The Romans, it's nothing new under the sun. Continues to be that case. And the Assyrians came in. And Samaria, by the time they come to Micah's territory in the southwest, Samaria was already destroyed. They knew that was going to take place. And it happened just as the Lord had told Hosea a few years before Micah. And now that, that army is moving south to Lachish and to Moresheth Gath and Moresha and in these various cities where now it's Micah's hometown. It's one thing if it's happening halfway around the world in Afghanistan or, or in Pakistan or in Iraq, but if it's happening in your backyard, we kind of take up notice a little more, don't we? Because we realize, hey, I might have to pack up and get on the road and get out of here just to survive. You ever thought about that? There are people, groups all over this planet that live from day to day like that, wondering where they're going to live the next day. And we kind of take for granted that it, it's not going to happen here. Nothing says that it can't happen here, beloved. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He goes on to describe the cause of the invasion in verses 5 and 6, the transgression of Jacob. We'll look more at that in detail tonight because he expands on it in chapter 2 and 3 and in chapter 6. And he tells us where they broke down. And so it's a great lesson for us because we can break down in those same areas in our testimony for the Lord. And then lastly, the consequences in verses 6 and 7. And we've been talking about that. See, the Samaritans used, they extorted the money from the people. Now, there are different ways man has thought of to extort money from his neighbor, right? But the Samaritans had found out that through false worship or through worship of false gods and through false religion, they could control their people and get money from them, right? And they would take that money that they got from their, and, and the way they got it, these people, they went into cult prostitution. So that someone would say, I'm going to this temple to worship Baal. And they would get involved in an illicit relationship and pay for it. And that money went to build more temples. That's what he means about the pay of a harlot. 
So it's a harlot both in a spiritual sense and in a physical sense, right? And But it's interesting, the Lord is going to turn it right back on them because they took from the people their money by controlling them with false religion and built their establishments of worship, as they called it, right? Temples to Baal. But then the Assyrians came in and took all that gold and silver and destroyed those temples and took it back to Assyria and used it for the worship of their gods. And that's why he says they'll take the pay of a harlot and use it for the pay of their own harlot. Which is talionic justice, which he tells us more about in the second half of chapter 1. We'll look at that tonight. Now this has been heavy. I see a lot of gloomy faces. So, so let's not conclude with this idea. Let's jump ahead to chapter 7 just for one statement, okay? Just so we end on the right perspective. Uh, by the way, I mean, you all know this from our studies of the Minor Prophets and other studies we've done, that, that the disciplinary sections of the Word of God are very valuable to us, aren't they? I'm talking about 2 Timothy 3.16. You adults should be able to quote that one from memory. We had the children giving us a good example earlier. That all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired of God, and is profitable for four different ways, right? And I believe in studying Micah, I've been trying to do some comparing, and I'll try to elaborate on this during the week as we go to it. But I believe those four categories in 2 Timothy 3.16 are the same four categories we see as the outline of each of the prophets, the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. Four areas. What's the first one? Doctrine, which is teaching concerning man. Teaching concerning God, theology. Teaching concerning man, anthropology. Teaching concerning the earth. Teaching concerning judgment, eschatology. Teaching concerning the church, ecclesiology. Teaching concerning salvation, soteriology, and so forth. Doctrine. Information that will help us to know truth. See, the scriptures are profitable for that. And by the way, every time you come to the scriptures in your daily time in the Word, and I hope you're in the Word daily, you should be looking for one of these four characteristics because Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us these are four categories that God uses every time we come to the Word of God. They're either going to be profitable for doctrine and teaching or for the second one. That's the one we've just been looking at, right? This is the hard one. What's the word? Correct, rebuke, really, right? Correction is the third one. So the second one is reproof or re rebuke. Now, reproof has to happen when we're going down the wrong way, right? I mean, I'm so thankful I got reproved. I wasn't thankful when I was a kid when it happened. I don't mean to communicate the wrong idea. But looking back on it now, I'm so thankful I got reproved, sometimes very painfully, by my parents and teachers and coaches you know, I mean, those boards with holes in them and all that. I mean, they were ingenious in how they did it. But it was profitable for reproof, you know. And we need that. Unless you're so proud you think you never make a mistake, 
then you don't need that second category, but you probably need to be saved. You need to go back to the doctrine on soteriology, right? But understanding that we're saved, Paul's writing that 2 Timothy 3.16 to believers. The third one's correction. Once we've been reproved about the wrong way, we need to be told what the right way is. And that's where the correction comes in. And the Word of God is valuable, profitable for that too. And the fourth one is training in righteousness. This is practical, personal holiness, day-to-day holiness. Training in it. And the word training, it goes back to Hebrews 12, child training, like you train up children. We need that. So every time we come to the word, so I believe the judgment oracle, the reeve oracle, the restoration oracle, or restoration promise, the call to repentance, these various categories that we see in Micah fit into those four categories as well. But Micah finishes in chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? This is what I want to close with. If you're a believer here today, you can sing this one from the heart with reality and emphasis. If you're not a believer, you can be brought to a place by the Holy Spirit to sing this when you trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over. There's the Passover picture again. Passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. You notice passing over the remnant of his inheritance. We are his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Hallelujah. Right, Brother Townsend? Hallelujah. I appreciated that, brother. He doesn't retain it. He could retain it forever. In his holiness, he could. But in his mercy, he doesn't, right? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And we need to delight in mercy too. That's why I said this morning when we come together, I'm a sinner in a room full of sinners. I hope that didn't offend anybody. But that's the truth. Let's quit playing. Let's quit quit pretending, right? Oh, someone says, oh, but I'm a saint. The Bible says I'm a saint. Yes, you're a saint positionally, but you're not in practice. And I'm not either. I know you. We sin every day, beloved. God is so holy that even when we think one evil thought in the day, when we're not on our guard, you know, sometimes we can think an evil thought of somebody driving in traffic or at work or at school. We have sinned, and James says, he who sins in one point sins against the whole law. So you tell me, you look me in the face and tell me you haven't done that. And that's why I delight in God's mercy. I delight in His mercy. And we need to be more merciful with one another, too. You know, we come in sometimes, not here, but I remember in the old days and in the assemblies, I've heard stories, oh, they were so pious. Come in and sit there and, and, and most of them were probably living a double life and, and not being real. We don't want to be like that. If you come here and you're hurting, we want to help you. 
We're not going to take you out in the parking lot and stone you. Some people would. But we're not in that business, I hope. I think, I think the elders would agree with me on that. We're here to help you. Because our God delights in mercy. You know, that's one of the things of the fellowship. I feel real warm and close with people who admit that they're failures like me. Right? I don't feel comfortable around a bunch of self-righteous, religious hypocrites. I'm just not. Because I know they're not real. So, beloved, we have a God that's merciful. And our message, the gospel message, is a message of love and mercy. And be praying for the soccer ministry tomorrow night. I am looking. I am expecting. Can I use, can I use that word? Expecting in prayer, right? I'm expecting in prayer for God to do something in the hearts of these young people that are there. You've been working with them. You've been praying for them for multiple years now. Let's pray for harvest. We've seen some good signs here lately. There's no reason why every one of those 120 sitting on that field can't come to Christ. Is there? God's arm too short? The blood of Christ doesn't cleanse anymore? Yeah, it still, still does. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord it does. So, Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the saints that are here. We thank you, O oh Lord, that, that you were merciful with us in our time of need, and you were still merciful with us in our sanctification. And we fail you time and again. And we're not happy about that, none of us. But we know that your scripture tells us that if we confess our sins before you, we've got a merciful high priest who is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of his blood, the efficacy of his blood. It, doesn't, it never ceases in its value to cleanse from sin. Help us, Lord, to live holy lives, but help us also to be merciful with each one of our weaknesses. We all have them. And we pray, Lord, that despite our weaknesses, that you can be glorified through us here in this assembly, Boulevard Chapel, that your beautiful, holy character in the name of your Son would be magnified in this testimony. For your glory, we pray, giving you thanks in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.